Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives inclusive growth and opportunity for our local tech, innovation, and startup ecosystem. They recently announced the 2022 Chicago Venture Summit Future of Food, their new flagship conference to highlight why Chicago leads as a global capital for food innovation. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for event details and other related news about our city's economic progress. Well, this is going to be a different show for us here at Chicago Capital than we've been doing in the past year. And speaking of the past year, it's officially the annual or the anniversary of the first episode on March 3rd of last year, or at least when we dropped the first episodes last year. Started interviewing people probably around January, February of 2021, but kind of took me two or three months to actually get the show off the ground. So we figured, Declan and I figured it'd be a, uh, a great opportunity to kind of do a year in review type episode and also talk about you know, some of the developments that have happened both for, you know, for both of us career-wise, show-wise in the past year since we really started in earnest with this show. And also just from the start outset, I want to give Kevin Daly, who's our executive producer, a huge shout out. Kevin has been invaluable every step of the way from research on guests, from the technical side of things, from actually being the first person I ever told about the podcast and helping me get off the ground. Definitely would not have a show without Kevin. So I just want to give him the ample shout out that my guy Kevin is due. And yeah, from there, Declan, I don't know, I'm happy to start and kind of walk through I don't know if I've ever gone through my background on the show and talked to people about how I got into venture capital, but I'm happy to start. And then, you know, you can go after me if that sounds good to you. Yeah, that sounds great. Before you start that, I've been working on the podcast with Matt for about nine months to a year. And uh, I've been sort of behind the scenes used to creating the, the scripts, distributing it, marketing it more on the, the operation side. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting experience making my first live on air appearance. I completely forgot that I just didn't introduce you there at all. So <laughs> that's on me, I guess. All good. Yeah, Declan's been uh, pivotal to behind the scenes efforts, guest outreach, all that good stuff that he'll walk through. But he'll tell us, tell you about some developments in his career and why he's likely going to be on the show more and more moving forward. You know, I'll give people the quick background on myself and it kind of leads into, you know, the background of the show, but I can just start with myself personally. Declan and I both went to Notre Dame. I graduated two years ahead of him, went to work out at Bank of America for four years, mostly doing sell-side research. And during my time there, I was an e-commerce analyst, saw a bunch of early stage e-commerce startups start to disrupt the space and kind of eat market share from some of the bigger blue chip companies that I was covering. So I got really fascinated with startups from that perspective, had a bunch of friends from Bank of America who were leaving B of A to go start their own ventures. And those coffee chats would be some of the most rewarding minutes of my day, you know, talking to them, hearing about the vision, seeing how excited they were, kind of contemplating the risk talking to them about the future. Love those conversations. So that was kind of the the spark for me. And when I realized that getting closer to the startup ecosystem is where I ultimately wanted to be. Decided to use business school to do that. As we're going to discuss, there's a million different ways to get into venture capital. And there's a million different ways to get into entrepreneurship. But to me, business school seemed like the most direct path from where I was at. So applied to Booth. And that coincided kind of with the pandemic starting. So just had a ton of time kind of at the beginning of the pandemic when I got into the booth to figure out exactly how I was going to get into VC. And through that experience, spent hours and hours and hours listening to venture capital podcasts. So 20 VC, This Week in Startups, Full Ratchet. There's there's so many startups that like I kind of listened to and learned a ton from and inform my views on the venture ecosystem and inform my views on starting my own podcast. So yeah, obviously our idea for this venture capital focused podcast was never that original, but we can talk about kind of, you know, the angle we tried to take. But yeah, I did an internship at a place called Manifold Group here in Chicago for about a year while at business school and started Alumni Ventures, which is where I'm at as a full-time venture capital a senior associate. I've been doing that since October. Still finishing out Booth. So yeah, running the podcast, doing full-time VC and finishing out a Booth, which as we get into a little bit later has just sort of led us to dial back a few things and optimize for a few things. But you know, we hope to fully ramp those back up in the next couple of months. So I think that's a good background for me. Declan, why don't you give people a brief background on yourself? Sure thing. 
Yeah. So Matt mentioned that we, we went to Notre Dame together. Going into Notre Dame, I was interested in technology, thought I wanted to run a business someday. So I decided to become a business major and ultimately got an internship with Amazon out in Seattle. And so Midwest, my whole life, went out to Seattle. And one of the memories I distinctly have from that, that experience was I woke up one morning with a text from my mom and it was like, Amazon, Amazon just bought Whole Foods. And I was like, oh my God, no way. This is a huge acquisition. Really cool. And then I, I remember walking into work that day and it was just business as usual. No one was really talking about it. Nothing. No excitement, no celebration, just carrying on as is. And so I was like, all right, this company is going to start to do things. And they already were at the time, but sort of led into me going out there full time for a, a finance rotation program. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but that gave me some experience working on a number of different teams and then ultimately led into me joining Amazon's internal incubator, where I got to work on a, a small finance team that helped Amazon Care, the telehealth initiative, go from a pilot to Amazon employees in the state of Washington, all the way to an enterprise offering to companies throughout the US. So I started during that time, I actually moved back to Chicago from Seattle. And that's when I linked up with Matt, you know, volunteered just to help him out with the podcast. He was just getting it off the ground. And as, as you know, it was a lot of work and he was going to school and also applying for jobs, doing internships, things like that. So just wanted to help out in any way that I could. And the role sort of evolved from just researching guests and coming up with questions to, you know, becoming a, a major partner with Matt in this situation. Nobody's going to listen to to the podcast if it's not going to the right inboxes. You need to figure out the best ways to come up with marketing messages about it. What sort of content does each person want? So that got me interested in in the venture capital ecosystem, and then ultimately led into my current role, which I can talk about that now or. Just why VC is that? Yeah, what, well, what yeah, no, uh, that's great. We'll hop into both of our kind of roles, and we'll talk about VC as a as a full time job and the differences I think in perception versus reality. But um, it's a great point, and the power of the email cold outreach. I mean, it wasn't cold outreach because we obviously have a long standing relationship. But I remember I put up a post for uh, honestly, I needed just a a grab bag of different responsibilities and you know roles here. I needed a lot of help on a lot of different fronts, and Declan wrote this great targeted email and a very wealthy thought out, you know, thesis on why he would be a good fit and his thoughts on the Chicago ecosystem. So I think it probably makes sense to back up and talk about why we started the show and why I thought Chicago in particular would be interesting. I think I have to mention Tech in Chicago by Colin Keeley as kind of laying the blueprint for what I thought this show would and could be. That's a show that started in 2016, which feels like 100 years ago in terms of the Chicago ecosystem and just how far it's come in the past four or five years. Very similar format to us, long form conversations. He would have on you know, some of the biggest or and, and soon to be biggest names in the Chicago tech ecosystem, including you know Stephen Galanis from Cameo and Ezra Galston from Starting Line. But yeah, so I, I looked around and I saw how many startups or uh, podcasts there were aimed at the coast. And even some aimed at other tertiary cities. And there just wasn't really anyone covering the Chicago ecosystem and all the things that were going on here. And this was probably about fall of 2020. So I was in business school, very firmly in the entrepreneurship track at Booth. And a ton of Booth founders were coming back to speak to us, like David Rabbi from Tavala, and talk about their time in Chicago. And I just felt like there really wasn't a spotlight on Chicago and the people from here, people building businesses here and people with you know venture capital firms here. And so, yeah, it was just a simple case of looking out, seeing there was a white space, and frankly, recording my voice and playing it back to myself to make sure that I didn't absolutely hate my voice, which I had my entire life, but something clicked where it was like, okay, I think I could stand editing my own voice for hours on end. And so that was kind of the pivotal moment. I remember sending, sending Kevin Daly a kind of a test, a minute long test. And he kind of gave me the all clear saying, you know what, it doesn't sound that bad. I think you should go for it. So thanks, Kevin, for that. I think from the very early stages, and this is just kind of briefly on some you know podcast, getting one up and running, picking your vertical, picking your niche is the most important thing. And then I think the second most important thing is consistency. So I, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to start podcasts, and it could be about the Chicago sports ecosystem, for example. And I think that's that's an interesting way to, to, to approach it. Like you have a city and you have kind of a topic matter. But I think the more niche and the more specialized, specialized you can get, even from the early stages, the better traction you're going to have, the faster you're going to find 
you know, those 100 true fans that you need on the internet to scale any content-based product. And I want to caveat here that while we've been consistent and while we're at 75 episodes and while we've been doing this for a year, obviously we're nowhere close to some of the big stalwart podcasts in even the tech and venture capital space. So no, you know, illusions of grandeur here. You know, we know that we're still building this thing and we know that we're still at the very early stages, but you know, we've gotten to 75 episodes, so we're three quarters of the way there to 100 episodes, which the majority of podcasts on Spotify never make it to. I can't remember the statistic, but it's like a crazy number. Don't make it to 100 episodes. So I think that's the two biggest things that I try. And if I anyone ever asked me about starting a podcast, it's really finding that subject matter that you're going to want to talk and research about for hours on end, uh, week to week. And so if it's Chicago sports, that's great. But I would always advise people to get, you know, narrow it down even further, like start, start with a thinner kind of vertical you're going after. And you can always expand as you get bigger, you can always broaden your scope. And then, you know, another point I, I think I just made was, yeah, the consistency, it's hard to set a time every single week that you're gonna, you know, release those episodes, you know, Declan and I just what's going on with our careers and stuff. It's been hard on our front, like totally admit that, you know, we're not, as consistent as we used to be or as we'd love to be, but it shows such a huge ROI when you can be consistent. So again, just ensuring that when you set a time to release episodes, like that's actually going to fall through. I think that's a huge point that I would make about starting a podcast. Yeah. So from those early moments of starting the show, again, back in January, February, I started it from my apartment, Millennium Park Plaza. And the first couple of guests, you know, those three or four interviews felt like they took years to prep for and years to kind of get ready. And I will say that I realized that the podcast could actually have legs when David Rabbi at Tovala responded to my cold outreach, sent a completely cold email from my booth account, which probably helped. But yeah, I mean, that company is going to be a public company, I think, one day. It's probably going to be one of the most successful consumer subscription businesses in the venture back ecosystem. And I was able to get him to agree to come on the show. And so when that happened, he was a dream guest of mine from the very beginning. You know, he went to Booth, he started the company at Booth, he started it in Chicago, that's its home base. Their main seed investor was Origin, which is a Chicago based fund. So to me, that was like the perfect first guest, uh, or one of the first perfect guests. And when I got that email back, I kind of realized that, okay, if I can get him, you know, sky's the limit, most likely on who I could get. And so that's that's another key piece is just make sure at the very early stages, you're lining up guests and you have an extremely strong funnel um, of guests that are going to be coming on the show because people are going to cancel, people are going to have to move around. So that's a huge part of starting anything is you just got to know that you have the pipeline to work with. And then Declan, you know, I think we could also talk about our great sponsors, World Business Chicago and your kind of work on the sponsorship front. And I will say... Like any kind of early stage, you know, I, I guess we could call this a venture in some respects, like any early stage project, anyone that comes on as an early teammate is going to have to wear a million different hats. And I don't even think I've clearly defined what the role was for Declan. But you know, he was instrumental in getting our first sponsor and for lining up other conversations on that front. So Declan, I think, you know, if you want to, if you want to speak to the sponsorship part of stuff and some of the strategies that you've been able to leverage about the process of getting us to 5,500 downloads, whenever I checked it was last, you know, that'd be great. Definitely. Yeah, I think, uh, honestly, my time at, at Amazon Care helped out with, with that. It was not nearly as, as small of a, a team as Chicago Capital, but just the wearing different hats thing, working on a lot of different things at once and just testing things out. When I first joined, I realized that I could just add value in, in some other ways. And so I just, honestly, I logged into the Twitter account and started firing off Instagram or Twitter messages to different companies, seeing if they were willing to sponsor the show. That's how I grew our audience a little bit. I would we post an episode with a guest. I would look through the guests' interactions, who who liked their previous tweets, and then I'd DM them and say, "Hey, this might be a, an episode of a podcast with this person that you'd be interested in." And then started to just grow it through that. But I think the power of of just having your guests share episodes on their own social medias and building that up over time is much more valuable because then I'm not the one who's actively going in and, and doing this direct outreach to people's inboxes. So if you can get that out of the way in the beginning and build that up to a, a decent size where you're more passive and it's doing it itself, I, th I think that's how the great podcasts um, end up growing from there. Yeah. And I think to add on to that, like anything else, like distribution channels, like you mentioned, really do matter. Uh, a huge one for us has been the Polsky 10. It's this weekly newsletter that gets sent out to University of Chicago Booth graduates. And I think it's actually 
pretty public, like anybody could subscribe to it. But we notice a dramatic increase in downloads whenever we get featured there. And so developing those relationships and developing that kind of connection to make sure that episodes that we do that fit into their you know, fit in their purview can end up on the newsletter. That's been huge as well. And there's other channels too, like that, where you can sort of leverage an existing, you know, footprint of another content driven, you know, organization and use that to get the episode out. Those have been huge as well. I think Declan, it's also helpful to talk now about kind of where we see the show going in the future, some of the major initiatives and some of our, you know, some of the changes we hope to enact in the near future. I'm curious to hear what what you think of this, because I remember when we first started the podcast, going out to dinner with Matt and talking about the grand vision of of Chicago Capital. Where do we go? Where do we go? You got to give it a shout out. Evanston. What was it called? It's like your favorite restaurant. I mean, EJ's EJ's place. EJ's place. place. EJ's place. I'm going to have to reevaluate some things. The fact that you just forgot that. Well, I remember we were there and it was like, it was out of a crime scene movie where you're like pasting different pictures on a wall connected by string. And you're like, we're going to expand in Chicago, show proof of concept, and then move to Miami or these other growing tech cities. I'm curious to hear whether that's still your vision or, or you just want to stick to the Chicago ecosystem or potentially, you know, rebrand to get more listeners in. I'll let you, you take it away. Yeah. The goal has always been a multi-city prong. I think what's changed in the past five months is conversations we've had with other media companies that are interested in kind of adding us to their, you know, their wheel of content. And I think there's a, you know, there's a possibility that occurs. I think when I'm looking at kind of the landscape, I still see so many cities with, I believe, soon to be thriving startup ecosystems. I think COVID has changed the nature of venture capital, the nature of startups, the nature of entrepreneurial hubs dramatically and for, you know, and permanently. Cities like Kansas City, cities like Louisville, Kentucky, Nashville, Austin was already a huge hub. And I think COVID accelerated that. But I think you're going to see a ton of these second and third tier. I don't mean that like, oh, they're second, third tier cities. I mean, just like from a population standpoint, you can look at, you know, whatever the tiers are. But these tertiary, you know, secondary cities are going to become huge areas of innovation in the next five to 10 years. So I definitely think geographic expansion is in the horizon. I think we still have some work left to do in Chicago and we still have a ton of people left to interview. And part of the reason excited to get you on the mic is that, you know, I I think that it's no secret you're going to be a big part of our expansion efforts here in Chicago and interviewing more people. I don't see many other people focusing on Chicago even still, even though there's nine billion, I think, in venture capital raised here last year, still don't see a huge volume of people trying to cover from wall to wall the Chicago tech ecosystem in a long form podcast way. So I still think we have a ton of white space here, ton of room left to grow. But yeah, ultimately the goal is definitely to expand to other cities in the future and to keep this thing going and to make it as powerful as possible. Yeah. Let me interrupt there for a second. I, I think it begs the question then, you know, how do you operationalize that and and who do you bring in to to help, you know, get the podcast up and running? Like we've sort of been bootstrapping this. So, you know, as as we we try to expand and grow, we're willing to take on more sponsors so that we can hire an editor or somebody to do some of that back end work to actually get the content out faster and more consistently, especially as we we move into new cities. Cause like Matt said before, consistency, especially early on, is very key to actually, you know making it a successful podcast in that place. Yeah. So to me, it's, I have a number that I want us to get our average episode download count to. And we are, I would say about halfway there. I think once we get to that number, sponsorships are going to continue to increase. Our capital base is going to continue to increase. We're going to be able to bring on more people. We're going to be able to institutionalize a lot of the things we do and turn it into much more of a process. But we're on our way to hitting that number. I have no doubt we're going to hit that number in the next you know six months. Once that happens, I think a lot of things are going to follow. And I think a lot of the initiatives you mentioned are definitely top of mind. But to me, it's like high quality guests, high quality interviews, get those download numbers up. We're on our way there. Once that happens, I think we're going to have ample opportunities to bring on more sponsors, you know, start generating more revenue. And I think I've told, I've thought about this idea a lot is like finding somebody in a different city to kind of bring on. What I have really started to think more about is people who have existing podcasts, bringing them under the umbrella of Chicago Capital in the city they're in. I sort of compare that to us getting brought into the umbrella of a company that is in right now, there's a ton of different regional players. And there's some who focus on the broader Midwest. And there are some who are just focusing on again, second, third tier cities. No one's really consolidated. I don't know when or if that's going to happen. 
but I'm totally not ruling like shutting the door on. And I want to have open conversations about like rolling this up into maybe a larger organization that does have an outfit already in another city. And we can kind of leverage that organization's resources in order to move to the next city. It would mean losing probably some of our independence, but if it fast forwards us to where we want to go, I think it's a win-win. But yeah, in terms of bringing on people from different cities, like that's something I always entertain. I've had a few people like reach out in the past. I love when people do that. I love when people send like ideas about like who could possibly run something from a different city. That's how I'm thinking about it. I think that also leads us into a question of the product. So right now we're doing 45 minute episodes, usually VCs or founders of companies walking through their backgrounds, what led them to starting their company or led them to the VC. It's there's so many newsletters, so many podcasts out there. It's it's about differentiation and how do you you come with a product that people are going to consistently want to listen to? And so do you think that you know, maybe maybe a more short form content is in the cards in the future. I know we've talked about splitting up and doing sort of like an uh, a news show format where you have multiple guests on one episode. So, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's uh, great. Happy you mentioned that. I mean, this is an idea we've been pondering for way too long now. That the inception of which came from after our episode. You know, she she brought this up as you know something we should maybe look into. But yeah, the idea of a shorter form, thirty minute episode with four segments basically that cover an investment theme, that cover a new startup fundraising, that cover you know some type of more fun, light you know lightweight type interview style with a VC, kind of get to know you portion of a VC or founder that's prominent in the ecosystem. Would love to absolutely do that and save an ep- another episode each week for those longer form, more conversational podcasts that you can still delve into topics in a longer form way. I think people love the 30 minute below podcast episodes. I think there's just a much higher conversion rate when people see this is only going to take 20, 25 minutes of their day as opposed to an hour. So yeah, I think that's definitely still on the on the agenda, there's a lot of things on the agenda that I think that just candidly, it's like, yeah, school, full-time job in the podcast, it's it's a lot to juggle. I have had an awesome experience at Booth, but part of me can't wait for you know the, the, the experience to wind down so we can really get back to going at this thing full tilt. And not that we aren't right now, but as I said, there's just so many things we want to accomplish in the near term. So yeah, no, I think, thank you for bringing that up, Declan. I think it's probably good for us to do some quick kind of reflections on the past year and what we've learned doing this podcast, some some key takeaways. You know, there's a there's a lot for me that I could reference. I would say I'll start with what Chicago has going for it. One of the most diverse economies in the United States. There are every single industry here, maybe aside from media, is well represented. You start a company here in the B2B SaaS space, either horizontally or vertically, you're probably gonna have Fortune 500 companies in your back door that you could get connected to. And there is still that serendipity of being in a hub that I still believe, think believe, still believe exists post-COVID. And I think Chicago has that going for it. Is There's just massive corporations here with huge IT budgets that are always looking to try out the latest and greatest B2B software. So I think that's... That's that's a great thing that Chicago is going for it. I think also from a consumer transactional standpoint, a lot of the major startups were created here. So you think about you know the Grubhubs, for example. I think Chicago is a probably a good kind of testing ground that sort of is an encapsulation of the entire country. It's diverse in where people are coming from. Uh, you have, again, like I said, multiple different industries. You have blue collar, white collar jobs. You have the universities. There's just a ton of different testing areas that you could leverage as a founder to see if your product is going to work on the consumer side. I think collaboration is another area too. I will say for sure that every VC I've met here is extremely collaborative. There are really no sharp elbows here. People want to see other people exceed. Uh, succeed. People want to let other people in on deals. I think that's just been awesome to see firsthand as a VC and to hear about on the show. And I think it's completely true. It's a very collaborative environment, which I know doesn't really exist as much on the coast. I think there's also to give you know the city government credit, there's been concerted efforts to increase the spotlight and awareness on the Chicago tech ecosystem and how it's grown. So I will say, and World Business Chicago, as one of our sponsors, are at the forefront of this. They are doing awesome work. Their Chicago Venture Summits are incredible. The lineups they have, the resources they put into it, they are all over the Chicago tech ecosystem. And I think they do a really awesome job. And then I think, you know, lastly, the brain sort of power in Chicago, some of the best universities in the country are sort of based here or send students here every single year. So I think there needs to be more work to be done to get more U of I 
computer science engineers to stay in Chicago after they graduate. I think that should be a huge priority for the city and for companies here to try and you know reverse that brain drain. But other than that, Northwestern, U Chicago, DePaul, U of I, there's there's just great universities here. I think that's always important for any ecosystem. Declan, am I forgetting anything that you wanted to add on? Yeah, I mean, I I think on a you know on a numbers level, Chicago had what twelve unicorns last year, the most it's ever had, and the most funding it's ever had come come in the past two years consecutively. So yeah, I, I think the numbers are are backing it up as well. Here, your anecdotes. Yeah, and I think now I guess what might hold it back, and this is something we've talked with guests as well. I mean, it's no. No secret. There was a, I don't remember who it was, might have been a Tribune article the other week or the other day about the biggest impediment to Chicago tech ecosystems growth is the crime here. Obviously, there's so much that needs to be done on that front. And I think it's probably the biggest roadblock to Chicago truly blossoming in the future. And so so that's obviously something that you know remains an issue for the city. I would also say validation as a startup hub, I don't know. I feel like you need more consumer unicorns to be founded here. Whatever it is, I just think that's an important benchmark for any any ecosystem. And there are companies here that I think have the that I've seen personally from a you know professional standpoint that I think have the ability to go the distance. And I'm really encouraged, very encouraged by some of the venture capital funds here. Some of the biggest names that you would know are participating in these rounds and they're backing these founders with these very early stage consumer focused ideas. So I think that's awesome and it's huge for the ecosystem. And I think you're finally starting to see that happen. And that's great. And then I think Lastly, Drive Capital is amazing. Every single guest I talk to basically has, you know, a million great things to say about them. They're awesome. They're a growth fund. I think there needs to be more growth funds in Chicago. I think that's another thing that's holding back Chicago in some sense. I had a great conversation with David Raby when he was on from Tavala saying, yes, it's needed. Is it important? Because some companies that get started here raise their seed in Series A here. And when they go to those growth rounds, they're expanding nationally anyways. So maybe it's not a huge deal if there's not that growth stage investor in Chicago that can kind of back them and see them through the journey. Maybe it's better they get somebody from the Valley or from New York or Boston to take them on that sort of next leg because of the geographic reach. But I would still say the more growth funds, the better. Declan, yeah, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, maybe it's not even a, a brand new fund. It's more like these Boston, you know, Silicon Valley, New York investors, you know, start to create more branches or more of a presence in, in Chicago itself. Yeah, or more people just moving here because they have the option to. I think it's a hard, maybe a hard sell to get that Sequoia partner or A16 partner to say, leave California for Chicago. I think there needs to be a homegrown bias or, you know, a homer bias there. I think for nothing else but the weather, I wish, you know, what's holding Chicago back, definitely the weather, but that's obviously not changing. So yeah, I agree. I agree. Also, like, it's funny, there is a dual sided need. There is a need for more capital at the earliest of stages at that pre-seed, pre-revenue, founder and an idea just needs the right amount of capital to get them going. There needs to be more of that. I'm very encouraged. I think that's actually taking place more and more. There also needs to be more of that late stage, early, you know, that late stage growth capital um, to kind of get companies to that IPO. So yeah, I think from a capital perspective, that's that's still what Chicago needs. Anything to add? No, I think you covered it pretty well. And that sort of leads us leads us into favorite episodes from you know, the past six months or past year, I just did a, a quick, you know, run through looking at the different guests. And it really just highlights the the different industries and focuses of, of people we've had on from healthcare, crypto, recruiting with Hunt Club, consumer goods, security. I think some of the best episodes were we, we had like a, a two or three week period where we really dove into crypto and had like Zen Ledger on and Peter Johnson from Jump Capital. But another interesting thing I, I, I noticed is Trunk Club and the early, early employees from Trunk Club spinning out and bringing that personalization concept to different businesses. So we had Lisa from Garmentier. I know you and I both talked to out of office. Those are our Trunk Club founders as well. And so just the idea of bringing personalized consumer experiences and a stylist to other aspects of your life, like travel, entertainment, shopping. I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to look at and what other industries that that concept hits. Yeah, it's funny. I think they're the easiest for people, you know, the, the layman to understand. Like, I think it's just easy for people to wrap their head around any consumer offering. I think it's tough because for me, what interests me the most is like B2B software. I love hearing about an archaic industry. Like I came from a metals and mining background and it, that's a very archaic and antiquated industry, been around for a thousand years. But like 
I think for me, what interests me the most is like, what's the archaic, what's the previously analog industry that's trying to digitize that's massive TAM that just has so much opportunity for SaaS solutions to improve the everyday lives of the workers and to almost bring consumer experience to the enterprise front. There's been so much innovation in the consumer experience from an e-commerce perspective, from a shipping perspective, from an everyday life perspective over the past 20 years. I still think we're in the very, very early, very, very early innings of digitizing a lot of the enterprise experiences and making those better, more efficient. And so for me, like as a host, a lot of the times, those are the startups that I love to talk to and love to you know dive into. But that was a tangent. But I guess for me, like the best episodes, I mean, I would say the one that I have one of the fondest memories of is my time with Lance Dietz. Lance is at KB Partners and a Chicago Booth grad, spent five years um, in the military before going to Chicago Booth. Lance and I did our first recording. He was maybe my first or second recording I ever did. And the audio sounded terrible. And I think at the time he thought it was because something on his end and don't know if I ever had the heart to tell him it was because I was doing the interview from Naples, Florida. And I think my Wi-Fi was terrible. And that's why it made his sound sound horrible. But I mean, Lance is like one of the most earnest, just great human beings I've met in venture capital since I started. And basically... I had a deadline to hit. I wanted to get the episode out. And I mean, I didn't tell this to Lance. He had no idea about that. But he made time on St. Patrick's Day on a Sunday to go and re-record the episode with me because of how poorly it sounded. And it just wasn't up to kind of his benchmark of like where he thought the quality should be. And like he wanted to do it over again and make sure we did it right. And I mean, to this day, we did that interview on like a Sunday morning, St. Patty's Day. And it was just one of the most fun conversations I had. And I just so appreciated like him taking the time out and caring that much about the product and the quality of the product we were making. And it goes to show, I think, how he approaches basically everything. So that's definitely for me, just holds a very high place. And it's one that I'm you know, forever grateful to Lance for. So I think Declan, we could probably now talk a little bit more about, you know, a little bit outside of the show, uh, more from a personal standpoint, career standpoint, you and I both are now working full-time in venture capital. And I'll be honest, you know, part of the reason for the show for both of us was that we knew we wanted to end up in venture capital. We knew it was an area that we wanted to transition to. It's really hard to get jobs in venture capital. Uh, I think it's getting easier and easier year by year as bigger funds are getting raised, but it's still a really challenging industry to break into. And so Declan, I think we'd love to hear your experience of how you broke into VC from the pre-MBA side, because you didn't go to business school or leverage any experience like that. You weren't even at a, like a venture-backed startup that exited. A lot of times people will say like, that's another way like you can get into VC or you should try and get into VC. So just walk people through kind of how you navigated that and how you went through that process. Yeah. So I think it's, it, it's interesting. Venture capital is becoming, you know, a much more prominent industry and people are going into college knowing that that's what they want to do. And they're crafting their experiences to cater to that. Even I didn't go to school that long ago, but Notre Dame didn't have a venture capital club or anything like that when, when we had attended it. And now they have these big, these big groups and all these, you know, mini funds that you get real time experience as you go through college investing in. So I think it's easier for me to connect the dots looking backwards on on why I actually got interested in VC. And part of it's the role I was in part of it's the, the podcast, but I think at a high level, I just like the constant learning. I think it's fun every day doing outbound research making decision based on that or just meeting with the founder and, and talking through the, all the big problems they're trying to solve. And so you take all of that together and you get to make a decision. But the added bonus is after you make the decision and say, yes, you're part of part of that team and you can actively participate in, in making that decision successful in the future. So that's why I gravitated towards VC. In terms of like actually getting the job, I think, like you said, the podcast was incredibly helpful because it forced me to do my own research and learn about who the major players were, all the the different vocabulary that's used in the industry, and then gain sort of a perspective on a very, very initial investment thesis for myself. And I think that's important as you go into venture capital interviews, being familiar with what the firm does, their portfolio companies, how you could add to it what you bring to the table. And then, yeah, like you said, I think it's becoming a little bit more, there's a little more job options now nowadays, but it's still definitely hard to break in. And it's it's not the easiest interview process. So we, we can talk a little bit about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's, that's true for pre-MBA and post-MBA. I mean, the interview process is extraordinarily opaque. I remember summer of 2020 reading like two books about breaking into VC and the amount of advice ranged from 
like, you know, walk me through a DCF, which is very much a private equity or investment banking type interview style question to walk me through a thesis with four startups you think are interesting and, and, and you know, do a deep dive on that. So it's hard to, hard to prep for any one interview. I'd say from the MBA perspective, it just feels like it's different now, even though even more so than it was two years ago. When I really first started this journey, like I think that there are just so many jobs now out there as opposed to what there was two years ago. And I think it's changed like exponentially since COVID started. I think just the size of funds, the pace at which funds are getting raised, how attractive venture has become as an asset class. It's just expanded the pool of jobs. So it's not like we're talking about this like it was 10 years ago when it was truly like, I think there's a stat out there that it's like it's statistically easier to get into the major leagues, like major league baseball than it is to get into venture capital. Like that's a stat from years ago, but I remember it was actually reflected of like how many MBA graduates or something were trying to get into VC, how many actually ended up doing it. So I think from an MBA perspective, like I would still recommend if anyone wants to get into VC and you're coming from a non a job that has nothing to do with it, like you're not at all involved in the early stage ecosystem, I still think business school is a great, great method. It's a great way to do it. I mean, you're getting the connections, you're going to be meeting smart people who are going to be starting companies, you're going to be forming like real lasting bonds with those people, you're going to get exposure to a ton of different funds just by being in an MBA program. And like, look, are the classes you're going to be learning directly applicable to the job of VC? I would say yes and no. Like I think there's a lot of great strategy classes that I took, a lot of great entrepreneurship focused classes that I took that are directly related and I do leverage every single day on the job. So overall, very you know highly appreciative of the MBA experience. It was crucial to me getting uh, my job in VC, but I still think, and frankly, one of the reasons I really was attracted to VC is that the job application, the job searching process, it takes a lot of creativity and just like a lot of, yeah, hustle is kind of a cliche word, but I'm struggling to find a better word than hustle. But like, you know, it just, it is kind of a grind. Like there's no structured recruiting trek for any of this. There's no, you know, on-campus interviews. Like it is all just doing your own research, calling as many people as you can, taking coffee chats as much as you can. I started the podcast because I figured it was killing two birds with one, like three birds with one stone. Like one, it was spotlighting Chicago. It was, you know, giving founders from here a platform to tell their story and talk about their business, as well as VCs to talk about their funds and their firm and their um, investment thesis and their backgrounds. I also thought it'd be a great way to just meet a ton of people and build my network. And through the process, you know, got a number of different introductions that I think ultimately had a positive impact on me getting this job. But yeah, overall, I think... From the MBA perspective, I think you still should, you know, there's still creative ways that can really help you in the end. Starting a blog, a Twitter account, starting a TikTok. I've seen some people start TikToks. I think starting a newsletter, like a weekly or monthly newsletter is always, I don't think it requires that much lift. And it also helps you so much when you actually get on the job because you can reference to those newsletter posts or those blog posts and say, hey, like I want to talk to this founder and get into this deal. And I have a really, really deep expertise and interest in this area. And I can prove that by showing my blog piece that I wrote six months ago. And so I think from the MBA perspective, yeah, it's definitely gotten easier, but I still think it's just always helpful to have like an out of the box way in which you're showing you're interested in VC. Yeah. And I think there's so many angel groups now that you can join and get real reps or fellowships that you can do. And those give you tangible examples to talk about in interviews, but it also sort of allows you to assess your strengths, strengths and weaknesses and figure out if you actually do want to pursue a role in VC because you might find out like, oh, maybe I'm more fit for the operator side, or I like what I'm doing a little bit more than that currently. And then, sorry, the second thing that I was going to say was you realize how important fit is with team. Like people mention that, but you sort of brush it off sometimes. And you don't, you want to be genuine in your, your interview process, because if you fake your way into getting the job and then all of a sudden you're on the job and you hate the people you're working with, or you don't mesh with them, well, it's like, it's not going to work out. So you might as well be as genuine as possible passionate about the team, the area they're focused on, and then it'll hopefully tend to work out more in your favor at that point. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm going to touch upon the team part in just a little bit. But I think I think it'd be helpful now, you know, I interned in VC for a year before I started this full-time role. And I think that it's interesting to see the differences of like perception versus reality in venture capital. So some stuff that does line up, I am hard pressed to think of a cooler job you get to meet with VCs all day. Sorry, you get to meet with founders all day that are creating businesses that 
many of which will fundamentally change the everyday experience of either enterprise or consumers. And you just get to meet some kind of transcendent people throughout the process, like people who you can't stop listening to because you're buying into what they're selling and they're just masterclass salespeople. So I think that that part of it has definitely held up. There's just so many cool, interesting, and and impressive people that you get to meet through this job. I think the intellectual rigor or the intellectual kind of exercises you get to do of, you know, at the very most basic, like market sizing is an example. Like if you don't enjoy that type of like, you know, process, I think from the outset, like there's still so much in VC that is, is thinking about a venture and trying to envision like, what is the ultimate size that it may have or size that it may take on? What is the ultimate market it's going to be playing into? But I think there's just so much like fun and interesting intellectual kind of exercises you get to run through. My favorite thing is like customer calls, like calling customers at, you know, a catering company or a floral company and asking them about their day. Like, what are your biggest pain points? How does this software like help alleviate those pain points? I just think it's such a cool job from that perspective too. Like you get to meet people from across the country, from all different industries and walks of life and just listen to them talk about their day and like the pain points they face and like how the solution's helping them. So I guess that's also a huge area that like has lived up 100% to what I thought it would be is like how interesting it can be, how engaging it can be to to go through the process of figuring out is this venture, is this startup something that's venture backable? Like will venture capital type returns be achieved in the long run by investing in this? Um I know that's simplifying it down very much, but for all intents and purposes, like that's been a huge, huge area that I'm happy it's 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 very much what I thought it would be going into it. I think a friend of mine or Dan Knight, who we had on the show earlier in the year, one of my favorite episodes to date as well, we talked through like the investment memo process. And Dan is the one who told me uh, this, but people are shocked at how much blocking and tackling is actually involved in venture capital. And what I think that really means is, or the way I kind of view it is like, this is still very much like a sales and networking job. Like, I think it's just like, I really enjoy the networking calls with VCs. I enjoy like expanding the network and meeting more people because a lot of VCs are like working on really interesting things that you want to hear about in the first place, or they have just very unique and well thought out perspectives on a given industry. So that part can be really fun, but I think it's just something to know, like there is so much it's like just emailing, making sure you're staying top on top of your touch points, making sure you're not letting communication slide, making sure that you're getting back to people. If you make promises that you're delivering, that is very different from what my job was when I was at Bank of America. And I was just kind of a sell side research analyst, like going deep on three statement financials all day and like, just like analyzing companies that were at later stage and giving investment recommendations. It, it is very much, a, you know, a, a, a people based people oriented business. And, and that I'd heard of it, but it's still, it never ceases to amaze, you know, surprise me how much it, how much of VC is kind of sales network and blocking and tackling from that perspective. And Declan, I'll let you add anything as well that you've experienced in your time yet. Yeah, I'd uh, echo everything you said. Adding to the blocking and tackling, I think even at the analyst level too, you probably take on a little bit more of the operational pieces. So going over like pipeline health of all the deals that you're sourcing or attending certain networking events, taking notes and meetings, things like that. And then as you you progress through the ladder of, of the company that you're working at, you start to, you know, hand off the, some of those responsibilities. But I think it's it's helpful to do in the beginning because it gives you a sense of, you know, how the, the company can operate and, and things that that you might be able to improve as you as you get promoted and, and move on through the company in the future. But yeah, I, I think Matt really hit the nail on the head. You have to be interested in in this and meeting with people, learning about maybe something different each day. I think that's the coolest thing for me is like one day I'll be learning about an inverter to a motor or some hardware company that we might invest in. And then the next day, it'll be a, a software company that's more consumer facing, trying to engage a new audience. So you have to be okay with not being the smartest person in the room. I mean, talking to a founder who's spent 15 years of their life learning about this topic and, and trying to innovate on it, you're just, you don't have the reps to, to be a little bit smarter about them in, in the process. So, you know, just being okay with that and, and still being able to make hard decisions at the end of the day, I think is something that's also an on the job thing that you really need to be uh, good at. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Hard decisions. It's like sometimes like painful trying to figure out if you like 
want to recommend the past to your partners or not. You can have sleepless nights over it, but it's just something that I think comes with time and repetitions and figuring out what are, you know, your red flags and green flags. And that's a question I try to ask a lot on these podcasts is just pick the brains of these investors and figure out like, what are signs that you see, even early signs that you can extrapolate and say, okay, like this is a leading indicator of success. So I think that's like a lot of times, you know, what you're trained to try, or at least you're trying to train trying to get better at doing is figuring out what are leading indicators of success for any early stage venture. I think that this leads into kind of our last sort of topic area of like general advice. Not that like, I think I'm in any place to give any major pieces of life or career advice, but I guess I did graduate college. What was it like six years ago? I think, is that right? 2016, six years, six, six, six years, six years. Yep. Yeah, I think in terms of major piece of advice, there's a newsletter I used to read called The Daily Dirt Nap. It was written by Jared Dillian. I read it every single day when I was at Bank of America. And I remember it was like August of 2019. And he had a newsletter post that was called The Path of Least Resistance. I still have it like in my apartment to this day, because it was the first thing that like really gave me the spark of like, okay, I'm not necessarily in the job, like my forever job or career. Like I, I think I want to make a change. I'm 25 years old. I think it's time to like figure out like my first three years of my career have been this, like what do I actually want to do? And his point was just, you know, beware the path of least resistance in life and your career, like going after jobs because they seem like they're just easy to get or like will be easy to do uh, or you have a natural inroad to them and it just makes the friction of getting that job that much more reduced. Like I think for Notre Dame, for our experience, like me and Declan, I can only speak about our perspective, but getting a, you know, a finance job at a big bank was something that just so many people did. And so it was like my first thought really coming out of college is like, I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing. Like, and you know, you seem to make a good kind of living off of it. So I'm going to go that route because from Notre Dame, like from where I'm coming from, it seems like a path of not that great resistance. And so I think I read that and I decided like, I, you know, don't kind of shortchange yourself in terms of like what you think your career could be. Even if people say something is really hard to break into or get into, like, if you think it's something you're going to be interested in, I actually think most career moves are possible over a long enough time horizon. I don't think there's anyone who can't get into venture capital. I, I, I don't think that exists. I think there's a path for everybody. And I think that's true for most jobs, except for like private equity, top tier private equity firms. Like, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to do investment banking. Like there's no if, ands, or buts. Like 99% of people are going to have to do that. Outside of that, I really don't think any job is impossible to get. I think you can find a way to network into it. If you told me two and a half years ago, like this is the job I would have been doing, or even two years ago when I first like was applying to Booth, like... I would not have believed it. I would have thought it was way too impossible to get a job and thought I would have to do a couple more steps in order to get into VC. So I just think that's a huge thing that like I've taken with me is that over a long enough time horizon, give yourself enough time, be patient. And like a lot of job opportunities can be, a lot of doors can open. And then finally, like, I don't know. I think since I started in VC, the number one, the number one thing I try and keep in mind is like being very deliberate and humble about who you learn from. The two people two of the people who've taught me the most in venture capital are people who are like two or three years younger than me. And and like, I can't tell you enough, like how much like Jackson Bubala and Dan Knight taught me while I was at Manifold, Brandon Barish, like these are people I worked with every single day and they taught me so much. And like, I'm pretty sure all of them are younger than me. Dan Knight graduated college like yesterday. I I just think you you have to be deliberate about like, who's going to teach you. This is still at the end of the day, like an apprenticeship business and you learn by doing and you learn best by doing it around people who you really think are going to, you know, who you honestly can't only just think are great, like venture capitalists in the space or have a lot to offer and can give you like valuable lessons. Declan, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I really liked what you said about the time horizon, because venture capital might not be right for you right now, but maybe you go take a job at a startup and get some operating experience or do some other sort of job in the meantime. And then that just sets you up to to get a job in VC down the road. So I think take that into account where you are in your career and what skills you need to build up. And yeah, I definitely had some some roles at Amazon that I, I didn't love and I knew I wasn't going to like right away, but it's it's more about what you can take out of the experience and move on. So yeah. 
Yeah. Lastly, because not to be cliche, but I think a couple of resources that I've loved over the past year and a half, two years plus, I think Zero to One is probably my favorite venture capital focused, early stage focused book by Peter Thiel. I think it's outstanding. I had a business school professor who said like, don't ever read business books if you can help it. Most business books are like three ideas extrapolated and expanded upon for like 300 pages. I definitely think that's true, but I will say Zero to One is outstanding. Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. Sort of true that it's like seven core ideas and he just backs it up with a ton of anecdotes. But I still think that book is worth reading 100%. It informs me like every single day on the job and like I've, it's been so helpful to this point. So that's another one I recommend. And then finally, two other books, one of which I read through business school as part of a literature and leadership class I took at business school. And one of which I think is one of the most important books I've read, 1984 by George Orwell. I read that last year for the first time ever. And I don't know, something about the way that book resonates even today. I would highly recommend to anybody. It's not business related at all, but I think it talks a lot about the slippery slope that there, that we currently live on in terms of technology and censorship. And I think it's resonant and it's relevant. And so I would recommend that to people. And then finally, the last book I would recommend is based off a podcast episode that I listened to with Tim Ferriss and Naval Ravikant, who make the point that reading is such a core skill. I think that finding books that can hook you, that can get you back into kind of the joy and the love of reading are really important. And I would I would dare anyone to read the book, The Postman Always Rings Twice and not walk away with a newfound like extreme passion for reading. It's one of the most readable, engaging, gripping books I've ever come across. And it's like responsible for getting me back into the habit of reading. And so that's one I would definitely recommend people check out. It's from like 1938 or something, but that thing, you can't put it down and it's a really quick read. Declan, uh, anything you want to sign off with? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of the books that are, are suggested when first starting out in, in VC. But since this is a podcast, I will give a shout out to one of the the inspirations of, of me getting involved with, with Matt on Chicago Capital, and that was the Acquired Podcast. Matt introduced it to me, and he, he basically said each episode is like an, an MBA class. And as a person who hasn't had their MBA yet, I was like, oh, this is a, a great thing to add to you know my skill set. And so... Acquired Podcasts tells the the playbooks that have built some of the the biggest technology companies and uh, investors in in the world, and you can you can apply them as a founder, an operator, investor, whoever. Um, but they're they're more long form, three hour, two to three hour podcasts. So if you're going for a long drive or want to do something while you're you're absorbing the content, then this is a great option. Completely agree. I also recommended this was a podcast. Somebody recommended this on the show. And I cannot remember who did, but I got this from somebody on the show. So apologies to whoever that was. But yeah, the, the LP program, it's 10 bucks a month. Some of the most best spent money. If you're trying to get break into VC, like I can't, I can't give it enough praise. It is awesome. So I will say the LP show, they just made it free to people so that they're posting all their episodes in a two week retrospect. So the LPs, you're paying the 10 bucks a month, you get first access to it, you get access to the Slack group and whatever. Uh, but after that two week period is up, they'll release the LP show on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to it. So I would start out, I did this already, you go back to the very first episode, they're, they're shorter content, they're a little bit more informal, but they really dive into early VC stuff like diligence process and, and everything else. So definitely, definitely recommend going and checking that out as well. All right. Well, I actually did not know that. So that's, you know what? I'm still going to pay the 10 bucks a month. All right. You got to support the content creators out there, Declan. I mean, come on. Yep. Awesome. Well, yeah, we've gone on for about an hour now. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, our rants and ramblings and have enjoyed the content we've been putting out for the past year. We've had a blast bringing it to you. This has been such a great kind of endeavor that Declan and I have gotten to work on. And again, a million thanks to Kevin Daly for all the work he's done behind the scenes. He's such a critical part of the show. And again, like I said, the show wouldn't exist without him. Also, shout out to my roommate, William Babrinskoy, who had to be quiet for hours at a time when I first started out the show and was recording it from our apartment together. Thanks for being a good sport on that one. All right, we'll sign off and we look forward to bringing you guys more episodes and to continuing the show and diving into the Chicago ecosystem. Thanks.